And we are back. It is the For the Win podcast. I am Will Kemmerdella, and I'm joined alongside Thomas Johnson. It's a two-man show today, much like the way we finished it out last week. But that doesn't mean we don't have a great show for you tonight. Thomas, how are you this evening? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit tired, Will, but you know I'm going to get energized talking about sports. So I'm excited. That's what I want to hear. So we'll uh, we'll dive right into it. We were told to uh, keep these things a little shorter. Uh, and we will start with the sport that opened up its season tonight, and that is the National Basketball Association. Just as we're recording this, the Denver Nuggets put a finishing touch on a 119-107 victory over the hometown Los Angeles Lakers. The Phoenix Suns will tip off in San Francisco against the Warriors in just a few minutes. Uh, Thomas, your takeaway from the Lakers dropping their opening night game. Well, you know, a couple hours ago, I had a NBA champion prediction of the Boston Celtics. But to be completely honest, after watching the Denver Nuggets take home the win, Nikola Jokic getting a a triple-double on opening night after probably, to be honest, not touching a basketball at all (laughs) over the offseason, I think I might have to change my prediction already to the Denver Nuggets repeating. Now, you talk about just celebrating a championship. Um if I had to pick a team that never that celebrated the championship harder than I'd ever seen, it would probably be the Washington Capitals in, I think, 2018. But I don't think any player had a better time after a championship win than Nikola Jokic. But, yeah, he comes back. It's just another day at the office. They put him out there for 36 minutes, 29 points, no big deal. Uh, that's still a really stacked Denver team. Uh, Jamal Murray also had a very strong night, 21 points, 8 of 13 from the field. Uh, Aaron Gordon was really efficient, 7 for 11 from the field. I don't think you freak out. It's very early in the season with the Lakers. They played the best team maybe in the NBA. Um, I, I think they'll still be okay. I don't know. I don't know, Will. I'm a, I'm a little worried. If you look at the plus minuses for the Lakers today, Anthony Davis, negative 17. Gabe Vincent, negative 17. They're supposed to be two of the better players, Anthony Davis, obviously, and then Gabe Vincent, a big uh, six-man-of-the-year candidate. And they both did not play all that well. LeBron James, of course, had his 21 points. He's not slowing down, or at least seemingly not slowing down. But I think we can be a little bit worried about the Lakers. It is first game of the season, but so don't sound the alarm bells just yet. But it, it might be something to look out for. Well, you see a lot of guys out there who really contributed for the Lakers in the second half of that regular season and through the first two rounds of the postseason. Uh, you know, a D'Angelo Russell shot 4 of 12 from the field today. Austin Reeves, 4 of 11. Anthony Davis, 6 of 17. Rui Hachimura, 3 of 10. These were all big-time contributors down the stretch. And at the end of the day, you want to take that sample size over one bad game against, again, a really, really good Nuggets team. Obviously, it's a little concerning to see Davis losing that badly sort of down low against uh, Jokic and Gordon, but again, long way to go. Well, I heard reports that D'Angelo Russell after the game was seen putting up shots, uh, so <laughs> we'll, we'll see if he improves on his 4 of 12 performance, but I, I, want, I want to hear from you, Will. Who's, uh, who's your NBA champion prediction this year? Oh, it's... Uh, it's a tough one. It's a tough one to say for sure. I think this is the year 
that the Milwaukee Bucks break through once again. Giannis Antetokounmpo just re-upped for three years, and of course, that had a lot to do with that big-time trade they made just a couple weeks ago to bring in Damian Lillard, who will finally play in the spotlight of the Eastern Conference. Not that Milwaukee's a major market, but when you have Giannis on your team, every team can be a major market. And all of a sudden, Lillard has his best chance to go after a championship that we've seen in a long time. You know that that team has had that loss to Miami in the first round, uh, sticking in their craw the entire offseason. Um, Giannis was obviously really fired up about the whole thing. They're ready to roll this year. I think they're the team to watch. I think I said it earlier, especially a couple weeks ago when Jack and I were talking about that Damian Lillard trade. I still like the Celtics out of the East. I think the pickup of Drew Holiday really pushed them over the edge. Great perimeter defender. Obviously, you have Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum as your scoring option. So I think... You know, before all of the trades happen, I would have picked the Bucks, but with the addition of Drew Holiday, I really think that puts the Celtics over. I really like their depth, which is somehow crazy to say after the past couple of years, but I do think the Celtics are going to come out of the East, lose to the Nuggets in the championship. Also, uh, Chris Stepps Porzingis they picked up, uh, so they get some depth down low. Obviously, Porzingis has excellent size, but has kind of been rotting away in Washington the last couple of seasons, so we'll see what he does in that role. The one thing you can say for Boston, for sure, is that was a team that was, their season last year started off in serious turmoil with what happened with Udoka, their coach. Now it's been a more normal offseason. You get the players you want to get, and it's still a really good organization, so, look, the East, I think, is an extremely interesting conference this year. Obviously, Miami in the postseason, if they get through the uh, regular season healthy, is always a team you got to watch out for. Philadelphia with Embiid is not going anywhere. We'll see if the New York Knicks can have a second straight year. Uh, but this is just a, a really interesting NBA season. Once again, you know, I, it really fell into this lull for a very long period of time where you could basically write in who your NBA Finals opponents were going to be. This is not the case in either conference, and that just makes it so much more interesting. Well, on that point, I don't really know what the Phoenix Suns are going to show us because KD, I feel like, has been picked as a preseason favorite for the NBA Finals on whatever team he's been on. Now with the Phoenix Suns, has Devin Booker, so I really don't know what the Suns are going to do, but they might be the team to upset the Nuggets this year. And Bradley Beal as well they brought in. I mean, that was a really interesting offseason for the Suns. They obviously get rid of an agent, Chris Paul, but Kevin Durant is a guy who could really use another championship ring. I think more than just about any player in the league, he needs to win one after the disaster that the Brooklyn era was. And sort of the fact that he was sort of carried by an already uh, – built super team in Golden State uh, when he did win the championships that he got. There's sort of a perception about him that he can't lead a team to a championship. He was carried by Cookie, uh, by uh, Curry, excuse me, couldn't lead the team uh, in Oklahoma City, couldn't lead the team in Brooklyn. Uh, can he do it now in Phoenix? Uh, that's a big question. He's now got a full offseason to get accustomed there. Uh, that's another team to watch for sure. Well, I don't I don't even know if Durant needs to be the leader because I think the problem, especially with Brooklyn, is he had to control the personalities of Kyrie and Harden up to a certain point. Now Devin Booker, not really that polarizing of a player. Bradley Beal, also not that polarizing of a player. They have great center depth. DeAndre Ayton is no longer trying to be that number one man. Now it's Bull Bull and Yusuf Nurkic down low. So I think this is... Not only a team that 
Kevin Durant doesn't have to lead for it. He doesn't even necessarily have to be the number one scoring option night in, night out. You can rely on Booker for that. You can even rely on Beal for that. So I think this is a perfect situation for Durant. I'm not swaying from my pick of the Nuggets winning the NBA Finals, but I could see the Suns in the Western Conference Finals against the Nuggets, depending on how the regular season shakes out. Tell you, it's another big year in the Eastern Conference for a team that feels like they've been riding sort of under the radar a little bit, and that's the Cleveland Cavaliers. Such a disappointing postseason a year ago, losing in five games with home court advantage to the Knicks, despite the fact that they brought in, uh, I think, an excellent player in Donovan Mitchell, but they their core really did not show up when it mattered most, and that includes a USC guy. Evan Mobley did not have a good series. Darius Garland did not have a good series. Uh, they're bringing back basically that entire core. No huge major changes uh, this offseason for the Cavaliers. Can, in a second year with Mitchell and all those guys, they actually make themselves a factor in the Eastern Conference? That's a big question. Well, I think there is one very significant change that doesn't really show up on the stat sheet, the roster, and that is playoff experience. Even if it's bad playoff experience, it's experience nonetheless. And this is a, still a very young team. Jared Allen, only 25. Donovan Mitchell, still 27. Evan Mobley, 22. Darius Garland, still only 23. So a very young team, very inexperienced team. But nonetheless, playoff experience is experience. They even brought in Imani Bates. You know, he had his, his issues transferred away from Memphis. But now he's on the Cleveland Cavaliers I don't think they'll make it out of the first round this year, but with how young their core is and the fact that they're not really being talked about. They were talked about last year when they added Donovan Mitchell, but now they're kind of under the radar a little bit. So although I don't think they're going to get out of the first round of the playoffs this year, I think they're going to make the playoffs and I think they're going to be a threat. Maybe not this year, maybe not even next year, but a couple years down the line. Uh, look, I mean, obviously Mitchell was... The most one of the most high-profile players on the move an offseason ago. And, you know, if you can't get out of the first round in two years with him, with all, the, with all the talk that went on, I think that would be a major disappointment. But that's it for our little NBA preview here. We're going to take it to a, uh, you know, we're speculating on what's going to happen in the postseason in that sport. We'll take a look at a postseason already going on, and that is in Major League Baseball. Um First of all, what a championship series it has been. We are currently in the top of the seventh inning of Game 7 in the National League. Diamondbacks currently up on the Phillies 3-2. to two. They're threatening to score a few more. Obviously, by the time this gets put out, you'll know what the result is there. But we'll talk about the Game 7 that went on last night in the American League. And it was, not, it was anything but an instant classic, Thomas. The Texas Rangers really handled the Houston Astros at Minute Maid Park an 11-4 victory. Uh, how much did that shock you that it was that much of a blowout? I, from the beginning of this series, had picked the Rangers to win. I really hope someone listening doesn't pull receipts on me because I'm pretty <laughs> sure I'm correct in saying I've always picked the Rangers to win. And so it's... It is a surprise in that they handled it so easily, seemingly. But, yeah, like you said, what a series it was. Rangers go up 2-0. Astros win three straight. Rangers on the brink of elimination win the next two. And, seriously, Adolis Garcia, man, like, 
I don't even have to say anything. That was an awesome playoff performance. My former St. Louis Cardinal now making playoff moves again. It's really tough as a Cardinals fan to see. But seriously, what a game. All Texas, ALCS, and shout out to the Rangers. The last time they were in the World Series, my Cardinals beat them. So at least at least I can be happy in that moment. Uh, but good, good for the Rangers. Uh, they, they got rid of him for cash considerations. Is that correct? They DFA'd him and traded him for cash considerations. Yes. Yeah, that hurts. That hurts. As a Mets fan who's seen many, many former uh, former players of mine really dominate in the postseason, I know how you're feeling. I'll tell you the most shocking thing for me was uh, Christian Javier, who was having a really outstanding postseason going into this game seven. I tell you, you have a guy who's going in with a 1.69 earned run average, who out, who allowed two earned runs and three hits in five and two thirds in his previous start against the Rangers in this series. And he did not get two outs in the biggest game of the season before allowing Texas to get three runs on the board. And it is just amazing how quickly a game like that can get away from you when you don't get a starting pitching outing uh, that you're looking for. And look, these guys have short leashes anyway in the uh, postseason. These managers want to script out basically every out you're going to get from 1 to 27 with whatever pitchers you got to do to get them. And I don't know how long Javier was going to pitch in this game, but I can assure you Houston was expecting it to be more than one-third of an inning. Um it was not. Texas a lot more on script. Scherzer didn't get out of the third inning, but I don't think they necessarily needed him to. Jordan Montgomery in relief was unbelievable, two and a third inning, didn't allow a run. And then from that point on, um, you're in the late innings, you've got this big lead. It was basically just smooth sailing for Texas. Um, that is a dream, dream game seven script for the Texas Rangers. Um and and they've got to they've got to really like their chances, no matter who the National League team is, with the kind of talent they have and the way they're playing baseball right now. Well, I, w- I want to go back onto the decision to start Max Scherzer because coming off of an injury, if you're the Texas Rangers manager, do you actually start Scherzer? I mean, he didn't have a great performance, and obviously the Rangers were able to avoid that with how potent their offense is. But he only pitched two and two thirds inning and gave up two earned runs. And obviously, Jordan Montgomery was the one who relieved him. So you wonder, could or should they have just started Montgomery in the first place? What do you think, Will? I mean, maybe they should have. At the end of the day, Bochi is a guy who is going... He's an, he's an older school manager, an out-of-the-box manager, but still one who's going to trust the guys who have been there and done that, and that's certainly Max Scherzer. Of course, I would counter that Scherzer has not been a good postseason player since he got to this side of the age of 40, which isn't a huge shock. Um, his ERA uh, this postseason, almost 10. He was terrible uh, in his one start with the Mets last year. But again, he is a guy who has experience pitching in the biggest stages in baseball. And I think that's something Bochi valued. And, you know, look, he wasn't great. Um, they didn't need him to be, though, because at the end of the day, uh, the other guy imploded for, for Houston, Javier. So it, it didn't necessarily matter. And, you know, you script these things out where I can basically have two guys who know how to start games go out there and get me through basically the first uh, six in, uh, five innings they've combined to pitch. And then at that point, it's just trusting your bullpen guys that have gotten you there. Two guys in middle relief, both had postseason ERAs under two. And by the time you go to the ninth inning, 
um, you know, the game was basically all all wrapped up. So, you know, look, you can second guess it. I don't love Max Scherzer in these spots at this stage of his career, but at the end of the day, uh, worked out for Texas. Well, let's let's talk about go back a little bit and the Brian Abreu suspension. The Astros were incredibly upset, thought they were showing favoritism to the Rangers, that is, uh, the MLB officiating. I thought that was completely fair that Abreu got the suspension, and I was surprised not more suspensions were handed out, and so I just want to express my gratitude that the officiating didn't necessarily get in the way of the series, didn't take other players out of the series, didn't hand out any other suspensions, unless I'm completely missing something, and it was just Abreu. I, I don't know how you feel about that, Will. I thought this suspension was really fair, dealt really well in such a high-leverage situation where if you take, let's say, let's just say Adolis Garcia out, who had two home runs last night, Rangers fans would be just incredibly, incredibly upset. Abreu, or relief pitcher, not the biggest loss for the Astros. I, I, I don't know how you feel about that, Will. Well, he certainly wouldn't have been the worth the seven runs that they lost by in this game seven. But um, if you're an Astros fan, I don't think you want to be going down the road of who's getting preferential treatment with suspensions. At the end of the day, even if there were no chance of suspensions, I think throwing at guys intentionally and giving up free bases in the postseason is just flat, flat out stupid. Um, I don't know what he was doing. And at the end of the day, it's been well established that guys who are evidenced to clearly be throwing at people intentionally, which was clearly the case in this scenario, uh, are going to face discipline from Major League Baseball. And that's just the beginning and the end of it. I don't think the Astros have a leg to stand on here. And the thing is, Brian Abreu actually appealed the decision and doesn't have to serve the suspension until 2024. So he did pitch last night. Yeah, exactly. And, and in that appearance, he did not pitched well at all so honestly if you are an Astros fan did you really want to bray you pitching at all <laughs> he, he gave up two earned runs in one inning of work so good on Major League Baseball for letting him serve the suspension in a lot less pl place of leverage if you know what I'm saying so but I, I thought the situation was incredibly handled by the ML uh, by Major League Baseball which can't really say these days for some issues all right, well, it's a tight game uh, in Philadelphia still. Um, obviously, Game 7 in the Northeast, I mean, it's just October baseball. It's a lot of fun, although the uh, Diamondbacks have doubled their lead. It's now 4-2. to two. They're in the seventh-inning stretch at Citizens Bank Park. Uh, we're not going to speculate on who's going to come back to uh, whether or not the Phillies are going to come back to win, but if you're sitting in Texas's shoes, is there a team you'd rather see uh, in the World Series? I definitely rather see the Arizona Diamondbacks. Look, I mean, look at the playoff experience on the Phillies. Look at the Citizens Bank Park atmosphere that the Phillies have and just the loaded lineup for the Phillies. Harper. Castellanos. Schwarber. Like, there's so many big names that if I'm a Rangers pitcher, I'm just shaking my boots. I do not want to face them. The Arizona Diamondbacks, don't get me wrong, a good team but a team that only won 84 games in the regular season, Corbin Carroll, one of their better players, is really young. He's never played in a World Series. So if, if I'm the Rangers, I would much rather play the Diamondbacks solely on experience alone. I think you'd also um, 
really fear what the Phillies have at the top of their rotation with uh, Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler. And when you get into a World Series and it really is just get yourself across the finish line to win four games, um, I don't think it's a shock that you could see one of those guys maybe three times over the course of the series, whether it be in some big bullpen outing or starting on short rest, whatever it is, they're going to try and use those power pitchers to get as many outs as possible. Now, the Philadelphia is a little weaker on the back end. Obviously, Craig Kimbrell's had a uh, rough go of it in the series, but you know Texas has gotten quite a bit of offense in the postseason so far, so you don't necessarily want to face elite pitching. I think elite pitching beats elite hitting in most instances. Um, you know, as most statistics will show you. So, yeah, definitely you'd rather face the uh, more upstart Diamondbacks, in, in my view. Well, October and going into November baseball is stuff made of legends. Like, I think one of my favorite playoff baseball memories is Madison Bumgarner coming in off of short rest to pitch in the bullpen, and he made himself into a playoff legend. We see Jordan Montgomery come out of relief yesterday, so... I'd be also worried. I, I couldn't even mention in my piece about the Phillies pitching. So I think I'm going to take, if the Diamondbacks come out of this game, which at this point it's looking like they are, but you never know with October baseball, like we've been saying, I'll take the Rangers if the Diamondbacks come out of this game, but I'll take the Phillies if the Phillies come out of this game. Speaking of taking risks, actually, the uh, Phillies had just brought in Zach Wheeler to close out that last inning, get the last out, and keep it a two-run ball game. So Phillies backs against the wall. You'll see the risks they're going to take. Other note, again, you mentioned the Mad Bum mo- uh, moment against the Kansas City Royals, and I believe 2014 that was. Bruce Bochy, the manager of that baseball team, he knows he knows how to manage those big games well. So if there's one thing you're going to feel great about if you're Texas in that series, it is your manager. So a lot to be excited about in sports right now. But if you are a college football fan currently attending the University of Southern California, uh, you're probably not one of those people really excited about what's going on right now because uh, it is week nine. We still have four games left for USC to play, and their season is basically now just can they play spoiler in the Pac-12 and what bowl game are gonna are they going to go to? They lose to Utah in a real heartbreaker, 34-32, on a game-winning field goal at the gun at home to get that dreaded second loss. No two-loss team has ever made the college football playoff in the four-team format. Uh, USC's done. Thomas, how disappointing is year two under Lincoln Riley? To be completely honest, incredibly disappointing, number one. But number two, I would rather have it happen here then get my hopes up, undefeated team heading into the Washington game. And you lose to Washington, you lose to Oregon on the road. I I don't I don't know about you. And obviously the way it's looking, they are going to lose those games anyway, potentially be a four, if not a five loss team, which seems crazy to say. But the question is, was this unexpected or was this completely predictable? And in my opinion, there's some ways in which it was predictable in that everyone knew the USC schedule was so backloaded that they were going to trip up at some point. If that be Oregon, Washington, Notre Dame, you throw Utah in there now. And so it's incredibly disappointing, but hopefully 
USC can play spoiler. That'll be fun. The pressure's off their backs. They know they're not going to make the college football playoff. I mean, look, they could be the first two loss team. I'm it's not going to. It's not going to happen. Let's not start this. It's 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 <laughs> it's not going to happen. I know they they are out of contention. But if any team, if they beat Oregon, Washington, and they beat one of those two teams again in the Pac-12 championship, it it can happen. USC that is not going to happen. I'm not putting that into existence. USC is not good enough to do that. But they can play spoiler. If they give Oregon that second loss, or maybe they give Washington that first loss, and then let's say Oklahoma's undefeated, Michigan's undefeated, we probably need to talk about Michigan a little bit too. Georgia's undefeated. There's not really Florida State's undefeated. There's not necessarily a spot for Washington if all four of those teams are undefeated. So USC is in a perfect spot here. They can play spoiler. And look, Lincoln Riley now knows and hopefully he gets better. Currently, reports are he's missed two days' worth of practices because he's feeling under the weather, is on bed rest, according to his doctors. Hopefully, Lincoln Riley sees this here now, sees all the criticism, and he can now say, this are these are the changes I need to make. I don't know if that is firing Alex Grinch. That seems like the obvious choice of many choices. Probably also needs to change his offensive play calling, as you talk about in your, your column yesterday. And hopefully it sucks for USC fans right now, but these two losses in back-to-back weeks can galvanize the USC coaching staff, galvanize the whole athletics department to make the right decision and make good decisions for the sake of the football team and get rid of all personal feelings. Well, Thomas, you asked the question, was this predictable? Um, You're correct that when you looked at this schedule going into the year, it was not an unfathomable situation that USC could take a couple of losses. That's not what surprised me. What surprised me is how it's looked. The Notre Dame game, we talked about it a week ago. Uh, USC should never be completely uncompetitive in a game like that. Utah, really good football program. I get it. They started Bryson Barnes at quarterback this week, a guy who has a trouble t- trouble uh, most of the time completing over 50% of his passes and getting a QBR above 50, basically did whatever he wanted to this USC defense. And by the way, Utah has now is now 3-0 and against USC in the Lincoln-Riley-Caleb Williams era. Um, I'll also say I am shocked at how bad this offense has looked um, in the last two weeks. Yes, USC put 32 on the board, but you take away a pick six and a punt return that had a drive start in the red zone. Um, USC would have had 20 points. Again, USC with Caleb Williams under center should not ever be scoring 20 points. I don't care how good the opposing defense is. Um, You mentioned I, I had problems with the play calling. Marshawn Lloyd averaged over 12 yards per carry doing whatever he wanted in the first quarter against Utah, broke off the first touchdown. Basically, I understand he fumbled, but he was basically in witness protection from the second quarter to the fourth quarter when USC couldn't do anything on offense. The other thing I don't get is these receivers. Taj Washington had a strong game, five catches, 112 yards. Thomas, no one else got open. 
Like, these Caleb Magic plays, we saw him doing the same ones where he's dropping back in the pocket, looking around downfield. It's why he doesn't always necessarily take off when he breaks contain. But last year, he was finding guys slipping open, and this year he's not, which is shocking because a lot of the receivers are literally the same. Mario Williams really has not been a factor this year in the offense. Dorian Singer really has not been a factor this year in the offense. Um, I didn't think they were going to miss Jordan Addison as much as they do. But this wide receiver core really, really is not getting the job done. Really for three straight weeks now. I didn't think they were very good against Arizona either. And the big picture thing here is... Despite what some may speculate, I do think Lincoln Riley will be the head coach here next year. But Caleb Williams is going to be in the NFL. This is a Heisman winner who, at his best, has given you better quarterback play than I think you could ever expect to get on the collegiate level. You're not going to get that kind of quarterback play next year. So two years of Caleb Williams, and you have zero college football playoff appearances to show for it, likely no uh, conference championships, to show for it and as of now no bowl game wins to show for it it's a tremendous wasted opportunity and when something like that happens I do have to focus my attention on the guy who is responsible for everything and that's the head coach Lincoln Riley who's right now his record at USC does not look all that different from Clay Helton's when he started here yeah both uh through 22 games Clay Helton 17 and 5 Lincoln Riley 17 and 5 quite embarrassing but on that, on that Caleb Williams point, because you're right, the wide receivers have just not been creating separation. A bunch of these are four-star guys, really good coming out of high school. You almost have to ask the question, are they not how do I how do I phrase this, Will? Caleb Williams is playing such good hero ball and has been doing so at such a high level for a year and a half that the wide receivers don't necessarily have to create as much separation. They're just like, oh, Caleb Williams is going to find a way to get me the ball. I can have 10 seconds down the field. The offensive line is going to block for Caleb. I'm going to be able to get open. So I do wonder if it is actually the offensive line play that has been limiting these wide receivers because last year they were a little... I hate to say spoiled, but that offensive line play was great for USC. Caleb Williams had all the time in the pocket. Wide receivers had all the time downfield to get open. And now they're suffering for it. The wide receivers are suffering for it because they have to be getting open on their first or second move. Maybe they can get on their third and Caleb Williams will still be in the pocket behind the offensive line. But this offense just looks worse this year at all levels at the wide receiver level at the offensive line level the only level that is probably better is you can make the argument running back I mean Travis Dye was a great running back last year Austin Jones filled in great for him after Dye got injured but Marshawn Lloyd has been electric and despite the fumble he did not play all that much and he played great this past weekend so I think the only position group at least on the offensive side of the ball that is considerably better is running back, and Lincoln Riley just hasn't been going to the well often enough. Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting point on the offensive line, certainly in the Notre Dame game. I think if you were to point at one position group and, and say why they lost, I think it would be offensive line. I didn't think it was terrible against Utah. 
Utah leads the Pac-12 in sacks. Uh, going into that game, they had 22. That was that was tied for the conference lead. They only had three in this game, and it's not like Caleb was really under siege the same way he was in that Notre Dame game. We saw a lot of that scrambling around, and I didn't think it was a vast difference in timing that we saw maybe a year prior. So maybe it is the receivers are just sort of assuming. And if that's the case, what I would say to them is, look, if you want to get your stat sheet up, and it's a crowded room where not many guys have separated from the pack besides maybe Taj Washington, I wouldn't say Zach Branch. Most of his impact has been special teams, not playing offense. Um Find a way to be that guy who Caleb is going to rely on when he gets out and tries to make the extended plays because it doesn't feel like there's a guy he trusts in those situations. He's just sort of looking around and can't find a guy. So I I don't know why it's changed because, again, it's not like the personnel is that different. Maybe it is complacency. Um, But that's just my thoughts on that. Uh, Coming to the defense, I I think – Fire Grinch is become a has become a very easy crutch for people um, to just say, oh, they fire the defensive coordinator and everything's going to be fine. I don't necessarily think that's true, given what's going to happen at quarterback next year. Um, I don't know who you think the starter will be. Will it be Miller Moss? Will it be Malachi Nelson? Will it be a transfer portal guy? It won't be Caleb Williams. And even with Caleb, the offense doesn't look great. At the same time, you... You can't give up 34 points to this Utah offense. This Utah offense has been terrible all year long, and now they've shut down Cam Rising for the rest of the season. Uh, they couldn't eclipse 30 points against the likes of Florida, Baylor, uh, and UCLA. They easily, I mean, they did whatever they wanted, and it was just the same play of going to Va- Vaki out of the backfield on the running back sort of real wheel play. The entire night. I mean, he averaged 30 yards on five receptions. I mean, are you kidding me? It's just so frustrating when you don't see those sorts of adjustments. Again, I'm not an Alex Grinch fan. I'm not a fan of the way this defense is playing, especially because it is a lot more talented. I'm not a fan of the sort of lack of discipline we saw on that last drive, not only letting Barnes get loose on the play that set up the field goal, but also taking that devastating roughing the passer penalty that Bear Alexander did that not only... um, Knocked him out for that last drive. He will now not play in the first half against Cal because that's the way the, the rules work. Um, look, the, I think I think uh, the too long didn't read version of what I just said is uh, USC is just nowhere near good enough on either side of the ball right now. Well, Utah scored the same amount of points against USC that they did Cal a week ago, which is incredibly embarrassing, especially considering USC is playing Cal this weekend and. I think I definitely have to agree with you, and I think most USC fans would agree with you now that Fire Grinch is just a crutch because the defense is somehow worse this year. I I think we can both agree on that. Somehow worse this year, even though they brought in the talent. You know, the secondary without Makai Blackman has definitely been hurting, but the defensive line is a lot better. We don't see them sacking the quarterback as much or as often as they were doing earlier in the season, but still much improved from last year. And you could make the case that that is still an Alex Grinch thing, but we haven't seen anyone really step up, take leadership, take accountability. You know, 
on a different show that we were on, Will, a couple weeks ago on Sports Scene. You know, I'm I'm revealing that I probably messed up because Bryson Shaw came out and defended Alex Grinch after the embarrassing near loss to Colorado. And I thought that would be the turning point for the USC defense. Bryson Shaw took accountability. He defended his coach. And I was expecting Bryson Shaw to be the guy to come into practice, to come into the next couple games and be like, this has got to change. We have to be better or we're going to get embarrassed. And I was obviously wrong because they have gotten embarrassed the last couple of weeks. And I don't know what happens from here. I don't know if this is the point where someone on the defense or even the offense for this matter at this point steps up, takes accountability, take leadership. I don't know what the problem is with this team. On paper, they should be, I don't, I don't even know, at least a top 15 team, probably a top 10 team on paper. You can say whatever you want about how you value Alex Grinch when it comes to quote-unquote on-paper measurements, but I, I can't tell you what's wrong with this team. They're a national championship contender on paper. So when they're not living up to that, where who do you turn to? You turn to the guy who is in charge of the whole operation, and that is Lincoln Riley, who, frankly, hasn't had his team play a really strong football game since Stanford, which was over a month and a half ago. It was week two. We're now in week nine. Um, so, look, I am in no way opposed to making a change of defensive coordinator. I expect it will happen. The idea that that's all you need to do and everything's just going to be fixed around here, I, I think, is lunacy. But on the other side of this, Utah has now, you know, they took an early loss in conference play at Oregon State, another team that looks really good right now. Uh, they're now 6-1, and one, and they're hosting Oregon. Do you think Utah is in any way going to make some noise to win this conference and maybe even sneak into the playoff. I mean, Will, it's 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 going to be tough. We we look at this Utah schedule. They have to play Oregon, thankfully at home at Rice Eccles Stadium. That's good for them. But then they have to play Washington on the road just a couple weeks later, the week right after Washington plays USC. I, I don't think Utah is this team. Maybe with Cam Rising, sure. But crazier things have happened this year. I mean, we're talking about a USC national contender team now being ranked 24 in the country, which I still do think they deserve to be ranked. I know some people were saying that's not I mean, the they're, case. look, they're ranked below a service academy. I, th I think they're plenty embarrassed by where they are. Right yes, they, they, they definitely deserve to be ranked. They should be embarrassed at where their ranking is, and I think they are. But Utah, yeah, Utah is not a top four team in this country. If USC gets boat raced by Notre Dame 48 to 20 and then Utah needs to beat that same USC team on a walk-off field goal are supported by a 15-yard targeting penalty within the last two minutes plus Bryson Barnes getting a 20-plus yard rush that, that's not a top four team in this country and again we've seen crazier things happen Utah is the back-to-back -back Pac-12 champion for a reason but I don't think they can get past Oregon and Washington. I don't think they can get past even one of those teams. Look, I agree with you. Um, I think Utah is still too limited on offense this year to go on the run they would need to to win this conference or make the playoff. 
I will say I have a ton of respect for Kyle Whittingham, their head coach. I, you talk about a guy who knows how to build a football team in his image. Utah this year is so physical on both sides of the football at the line of scrimmage. They run the ball pretty well considering uh, the fact that every team just expects them to hand it off 40 times a game. Uh, their defense is really excellent. They're physical. They're tough. They're gritty, and they do it in a non-traditional college football market. Uh, that's a team. You talk about teams moving conferences. I feel as good about Utah's chances to really make some noise in the Big 12 as I do as any team that that's moving, frankly. But we'll go a little broader with the college football. Um, it was an interesting week. A lot of games you presumed were going to go one way and didn't necessarily. Florida State got scared by Duke a little bit. Oklahoma scared by UCF. North Carolina losing outright to Virginia, in my opinion, the worst team in Power 5 they lost to. But meanwhile, the Michigan Wolverines just keep on humming. A 49-0 win over their in-state rival Michigan State. But that's not the story with that team right now. The story with that team is a potential sign-stealing scandal um, that's still sort of ongoing investigation-wise. But, Thomas, what do you make of the uh, rhetoric surrounding the Wolverines right now? Well, we we only have a couple more minutes, Will, so I'll keep this brief. But if Michigan gets the same punishment that USC got for the Reggie Bush scandal and, you know, prorate it to their crimes, you could see a multi-year postseason ban, who knows, double-digit scholarship reduction. This is really serious, and originally I didn't think it was because I didn't understand the rules, but Michigan was sending, what what was his last name? Sorry? His his, his name. What was his name? Whose name? The the guy they are sending. That, 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 oh. that has been revealed since, but whatever his name was, he bought... It was uh, Stallions. Stallions, yes. He bought tickets to not only Big Ten opposing teams, but other college football playoff contenders, which is just crazy to me. And it's it's really serious stuff. And I, I don't know what the NCAA is going to do. I think the Big Ten will try to defend Michigan more than the Pac-12 defended USC around the whole Reggie Bush stuff, but pretty serious stuff, Will. Yeah, they like to bend the rules in Ann Arbor, uh, especially under Harbaugh. We already saw recruiting violations. Harbaugh had to take a self-imposed three-game suspension to start the year, which you know really means a lot given how tough their uh, non-conference was with uh, the likes of East Carolina and UNLV. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it would be nice to see Look, the investigation's ongoing, but if, in fact, these allegations are founded, it'd be nice to see them get a little bit more than a slap on the wrist. And the last point I'll make on this is you can see sort of reverberating around college football the reactions to this and sort of how seriously other teams take it. Uh, there, There's a clip going around of uh, the head coach, Greg Schiano at Rutgers sort of saying, like, there's some weird stuff going on, like, during a game against Michigan. Um, clearly insinuating there was some foul play. We're now seeing Lincoln Riley calling plays behind a screen on the USC sideline. So obviously these teams understand how serious a violation this is. Um, And, you know, you'd like to see uh, the NCAA uh, grow a spine and hold 
those who break the rules accountable, if in fact that's what was going on. But uh, we're going to call it here. That's going to do it for the For the Win podcast. Real good discussion across the sports landscape today. For Thomas Johnson, I'm Will Camardella. We'll see you next week.